How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey, this is Ruth Riley. It was the 96 Olympic team toured for a year before the Olympics. And I went to Purdue and I, you know, they had an open practice. And I remember, you know, as a player with these dreams and aspirations of playing in college and being able to, to just see them practice and to see the intensity by which they competed. And, you know, just watching that was kind of an aha moment for me. Not only the chapter that I was about to go into collegiately, but my ultimate dream was to play in the Olympics. And that was the most tangible experience that I had to that dream and I think that that just continued to inspire me to chase after that and then obviously that ultimately came true in in 04. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Episode two, Jess. We have a few things before we look forward. We just have to glance quickly in the rearview mirror coming off Mm. of the heels of season one, Gina Davis, finally wrapping up A League of Their Own, and who wades into the territory but a one Mr. Bill Simmons. Oh, what did Bill Simmons do? Well, on his podcast, which is released on someday, I'm actually not sure which day it's released on, The Rewatchables. I'm not going to be that petty, Jess. The Rewatchables, because he has a co-host who <laughs> we both like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they rewatched A League of Their Own, and yes. Bill Simmons tweeted out on the same day that season two of Off the Looking Glass premiered, he tweeted out that Gina Davis, for some reason, is treating the secret, quote unquote, of whether Dottie Henson dropped the ball on purpose, like as if she knows the answer to who assassinated JFK. So, mm. but but it's more layered than that. Yes. Do you want to hear the layers? Do you want to hear I the layers? Want, I do want to hear the layers. I'm, I'm scared where this is going, but yes, tell us the layers. I don't know, Jess. I'm, I'm a little apprehensive because in season one, we somehow made an arch enemy of Gino Ariema. Yes, somehow we did. I don't know how yeah. that could have happened. I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't us, obviously. It was something else. And now here we are at the top of season two, and it appears as if I am going to wander into the territory of making another powerful man an arch enemy at the beginning of season two. And I don't know how I feel about this. Because we feel like he took a bit from our show and tried to make it his bit. Is that mm, is that right? Mm. No, no, no. I'm I oh, am oh, okay. I, yeah, I mean I, I suppose that is the ostensibly the entry point to this conversation. Okay. But it's deeper than that. I mean this goes oh, okay. back this goes back a decade plus where Bill Simmons has notoriously gone out of his way to trash women's sports. Not a passive observer like let them have that over there but marching on over and just taking a big old shit on women's sports time and time again. Do we should, should we call up some examples of this? I think we need to because I know that this person has a lot of fans who are going to be very critical of this, so we oh, probably no. should have some receipts. Okay, so when Bill Simmons was writing for Page 2, which was part of ESPN, he wrote a column about the WNBA, and I, I'm obviously not going to go through all of it, but here's a snippet. 
Maybe you enjoy watching women playing basketball at the highest possible level, a level that could roughly be compared to, quote, a good intramural game at a Division II college, only if nobody could jump or dunk. Oh, okay. For the past nine years, the WNBA has been given countless chances, endless promotion, mainstream coverage, and truckloads of capital. Has it helped? Absolutely not. Let's end the ongoing charade that this is a mainstream sport. Oh, that's not even that bad. It, that's not even that bad. Wait, Jess. but basketball, it is a mainstream sport. It is. It's the same sport. Not, the- not when the ladies play it. Not when the ladies <laughs> play it. So, that is not even that bad of a receipt. Should we go even worse? Is there worse? This is already making my skin crawl. Yes. So, from the book of basketball, here is a section. Very quick section. Quote, I wish WNBA scorers would be banned from all scrolling tickers on ABC and ESPN. I'm tired of subconsciously digesting tidbits like, quote, Phoenix 52, Sacramento 44, final, and thinking, wait, that was the final score? Before realizing it was the WNBA. Let's just run their scores on NBA TV with pink lettering and only between the hours of 2 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. So. Wait, that's in a, a book? That is in a book printed by a mainstream, a big five publisher, in fact. So the point here is that, do I care if Bill Simmons talks about a league of their own? Kind of. What is troublesome is that somebody wants to wade into an iconic women's sports controversy, of which we don't have many because not many movies, not much culture is made for female athletes. And now Bill Simmons, Bill Simmons wants to wade into this territory It just, it ruffles my feathers, Jess. That's what it is. Kate, you're saying that you want him to just let us handle this one, right? Like, dude, you've said some things that you probably regret, but you probably felt at the time that hurt a lot of people. And so you can't have this one. Like, let us have this one. You can't have your cake needed to. Female Athletes and Women's Sports has a growing piece of the spotlight, but a league of their own was one huge one. You can't have the whole world over here with all of the resources and attention paid to men's sports, and then come and cannibalize this area too. That is my position on this. So your feathers are ruffled. I have feathers and they're ruffled. I don't know why I have feathers, honestly. That's weird, but they are ruffled. (laughs) So your feathers are ruffled. Our listeners' feathers are ruffled because we didn't tell them what Gina Davis actually said (laughs) about the ending of A League of Their Own. Someone tweeted at us and said that they haven't been this disappointed since the finale of Game of Thrones, which is a very, very deep and devastating type of disappointment that I also felt. So I I feel bad for doing that to our listeners. But Kate, we have a whole episode to get to, so we'll deal with that stuff later. Maybe we'll tell them, maybe we won't. We first want to get to our interview today, which is with Neka Agumake. Yes, it is. And also, we have a movie review of The Little Giants, that quote-unquote iconic movie from the 90s. Was it iconic? I think it's iconic. Starring, co-starring, Becky the Icebox O'Shea. You're going to want to stick around for that. Oh, and also, don't skip the ads. Oh, my goodness. We got Please, a big one. Is... <gasps> dun, 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 dun. No timeouts remaining. Gray up the floor. Gray rumbles in, fading away. No. On 
today's episode of Off the Looking Glass, we have a WNBA champion for which she hit the game-winning shot with three seconds left. She's a WNBA MVP, the WNBA Rookie of the Year, a six-time All-Star, four-time All-WNBA Defensive Team. She's a EuroLeague champion, she's a graduate of Stanford, and she's the president of the WNBA Players Association. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Neka Agumake. All right, Neka, thank you so much for making the time. We are going to dive right in because there's been some like really interesting off-season W stories, like the one that the Sports Illustrated article about charter flights. That made the rounds for so many reasons. I think people are interested in that kind of like dynamic to begin with. But I figured you would be the best person to come to to take us inside of of the issue of charter flights and where where the women of the W stand on that. I think that that article like had a lot more, um, I guess you could say a lot more impact following, of course, the announcement of the capital raise, because when you think investment, you think investment in areas in which the players especially have been publicly concerned. But, you know, it's a business. So that's not that's not always how businesses run, I guess. But, you know, the players, we have things that we need fixed, especially for the caliber at which we compete, I guess. Like all I can say is like the players know what they want. We know it is what we need to perform. And although we're not asking for the exact same thing that, say, men in the NBA are getting, but we want to move forward. We want to move towards that direction. And so I think it's difficult to take seriously, especially as players, some of these announcements in investment when it doesn't appear as though there's any real collaboration to get to where we want to go. It's not that people don't want it to happen. I think everyone wants, wants to get to the same place. It's just that everyone has a different route. Everyone has the best way that they think that they can get there. But in order for us to get there, it requires a lot of like minds trying to figure out exactly how we can make that work. And in my experience as president, too, with situations like this, conversation goes a lot, a lot further than just, you know, kind of absolute answers. And I don't want to say unsubstantiated because there's a level of transparency that we do and don't have, understandably so. But, you know, just a step towards collaboration, communication, so that we can really figure out what we can do to do something in this area. So that's kind of the best answer I can give you. Yeah, yeah. That was a very diplomatic president <laughs> of a Players Association answer. <laughs> you mentioned like there's a lot of different routes and different opinions about how to get somewhere. So when you're in this position, how do you get to somewhere that feels like a progressive step forward when everyone has a different opinion on how to get there? Oh, the first thing you, you do is you got to listen. If everyone has their own way, or if everyone has a way, you got to listen to those different ways. You have to figure out exactly what's on everyone's mind. What are the ideas that are circulating? Provide space for those who haven't normally had a chance to speak about anything. Because a lot of times in this society, in this kind of social political climate, we're so focused on our differences. But if, if you let everyone say something, you actually realize that a lot of people might say the same thing. And so there's this assumption that we're always against, 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 you know, this side, that side, her side, his side. Like it, it can be alleviated if we do more listening. For me, that's how I figured out what direction to go. I can't go in the direction that I think is right. I have to go in the direction that 144 women think is right. When everyone has a voice or when everyone has agency to express that, you'll realize that 144 can turn into 14. 
because a lot of people are saying the same things. And then in that 14, you figure out how you can compromise and narrow it down, narrow it down to ensure that people are comfortable with the path. Not everyone's going to be happy, but if you can get most people to be happy about it, a lot of the people that aren't happy will be cool when the results come through. Will you take us inside of what something like having charter flights actually means? Like in the day-to-day of being a W player, what does it feel like to be traveling the way you're currently traveling versus what you think the like on-court benefit or off-court benefit you think would be? I think that the only way that I can describe that us traveling like how it is for us now is, hey, Jessica, like you guys travel the same way. I can't really, you know what I'm saying? Like I can't distinguish anything. The only thing that might be different. But I don't work out for three hours a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I was going to say the only thing that's different is like what is in between those flights? And that, that part needs to be simplified. So essentially, if I need to play in mini, I don't want to have to think about what time I'm going to get to the airport for a flight that could be delayed due to certain circumstances, the amount of waiting in the airport that adds time to travel, wondering if I'm going to have a middle seat. Well, in the CBA now, no one should be having any seat that is lower than economy plus or comfort. But, you know, those are all variables that you wouldn't have to think about. Even like getting your bags to the airplane, to the airport, going through security. Those are all things that could be substantially mitigated and reduce the amount of stress and variables that contribute to game preparation, to physical preparation. So like, for example, if we play at home and then we play in Seattle two days later, we have to decide now, do we leave after the game if the game is early or do we leave the next morning and then risk having less time in Seattle whereas if you were to have a charter flight if your game is at three in LA and you play if your game is at three in LA on Sunday and you play in Seattle on Tuesday at seven like you can fly out after the game sleep in Seattle two nights before you go and play them and so those are a lot of the small logistics that I guess non-athletes or people who aren't in the league wouldn't necessarily understand and a lot of that contributes to rest, recovery, how you're able to practice the next day. So like there's just so many variables that people don't think about when we're talking about these things. There have been some like high profile travel debacles with WNBA players. Do you have any specific issue that you ever encountered with a delayed flight or a lost bag or anything like that? The one that, that sticks out to me the most was when it was Fish's first year and we were playing in mini. And we had played the game and we we were flying out right after the game. So we left from Target Center and went straight to the airport. And for whatever reason, the bus driver and Minnie dropped us off at the wrong place. It's like it's a party of 20 plus people with 40 plus bags. So we had to it was literally like train, plane, automobile situation, you know, over the river, through the woods. Like it took us 40 minutes to get to the other terminal. We had to get all the bags down. We had to find the tram. We had to take the tram and we had to lift all the bags. Up. Like it was just, it was just a mess. And it was right after a game. We basically had like strength and conditioning after the game. It was, it yeah. was actually like, yeah. Yeah. Fish was not happy. He was not happy. Yeah. People were talking about when they were talking about this charter flight thing, they were saying, you know, Neymar has has mentioned that he wants to come play in the MLS at some point in his career. And people were just imagining because MLS still flies commercial. 
they were just imagining Neymar getting onto a plane and like economy plus and like people in America not having any idea who Neymar is. When you're traveling, I mean, I imagine in all the cities you're you're in at some point is a W city. Are you like engaging with people about being WNBA players like at every moment of being of traveling as commercial? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, yeah. You know, when you're in the airport, people will recognize us. A lot of times when we're wearing team issue gear, people will ask us, you know, oh, who do you guys play for? Even though it says it, but, you know, people still ask us. <laughs> and we're always engaging with travel. I mean, we there are instances where we're sitting on the plane and, you know, the flight attendant figures out that there's a team on the plane and they tell the pilot and the pilot says it on the wow. intercom. Like that happens at least like a few times a year. You know, it's great being able to interact with fans, but it's... I'm not trying to do that like on a 5 a.m. flight. You know what I'm saying? Like you reserve the right to just be. And it's tough because, you know, as women in sport, I feel like we always have to be on. You know, there's this expectation of like, I'm a fan, like I follow you, you know. But if Katie's walking through the airport and he's like an asshole to somebody, like it's not really that big of a deal, no. you know? Yeah. So there's a challenge of like, okay, we're traveling. I'm trying to eat. I'm trying to get on this flight. I'm trying to make sure that I have the right seat. And then also being courteous and respectful and enjoyable to fans who come up in the middle of like what is really a business trip. So catch 22. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I guess you're you're in the constant state of recruiting in some ways. Like everybody you meet, you want to either they are and you want to they are a W fan and you want to engage them with them as such because that's cool. And if they aren't, you may not know, but you're like in the process of recruiting them, whereas that is not necessarily true for men's sports. So the league rights, the TV rights being up in 2023, I mean, you'll know, you'll have all of the insight on this. Like I'm looking at it like this huge moment for the W. Cause if you look back five years ago, the leaps and bounds that have been made, they're so big that it's like this moment of like, let's see the value of, of what this thing is. I'm saying it's the, of what this thing is. Of what this thing is. We're down our first rabbit hole of season two. How does it, what do you think about it down here? How does it feel? How does it look? I forgot how dark it is down here. It is, it is. And the echo? Echo! It smells like cookies. Why? Oatmeal raisin cookies, I think. Mm. I love oatmeal raisin cookies. Me too. They get a bad rap. They do. Okay, separate topic that we might get a lot of feedback from if we start talking about oatmeal raisin cookies. People get fired up about those. That's true. But I wanted to pop down here because you know this quite well, that one of my pet obsessions is this idea of rights around women's sports. And I mean, TV deals and sports drink deals and all of the ways in which we could increase the bottom line of women's sports. And so I wanted to pop down here and talk about that whole grouping of issues. The first being the TV rights deal for the WNBA, which is currently the majority of it is with ESPN through 2025 and how I have my eye on 2025 as like this transcendent moment for the W when we really see its value on the open market. Yeah. And I read an article about this, Kate. It was in ESPN and it was about Kathy Engelbert, who is the commissioner of the WNBA, her vision for the next five years and growing the W and one of the main issues is TV rights because more rights fees means higher salaries in the next CBA means a bigger pie from which we can split pieces off of. And right now it just seems like the current deal that the WNBA has is not really comparable to other sports leagues that are 
its age, like the MLS, which this article compares it to, and also its size and in viewership. The comparable sporting events that get similar viewership to the WNBA are making a little bit more money, in some cases a lot more money. That is why this is one of my pet projects around specifically the W, but all of women's sports, is that we constantly hear, like Kirk from Fort Collins in season one, we constantly hear the feedback, and in real life as well, that, well, it's all about economics, it's the bottom dollar, and the truth is that we don't know what the bottom dollar is for women's sports, because just looking at the W rights as a case study, they have historically been in some ways just sort of tossed in with the NBA rights that get sold to ESPN, just like a wink and a nod. Like, okay, like let's throw in the W rights as well, which I have no doubt there was a place for that, given the history that there probably was a time when it would have been difficult to get the rights at a certain level. But that time is in the rearview mirror. And we don't know yet if you unbundled like, for example, the thing I talk a lot about with people in the women's college game about the women's NCAA tournament is the women's tournament is like a toss-in. It's always a toss-in. And we don't know what that value would garner on the open market. Or like, here's another example that Sue Bird talked a lot about last year and on season one was if the category of sports drink is a thing, what always ends up happening is that the sports drink category gets sold to the NBA and written into the contract is, oh, it also covers the WNBA. Okay, fine, but where does that money go? Whatever that revenue, where does it go? It never goes to women's sports. So it like perpetuates this idea that like they don't make any money. And I think we've got a couple landmark moments coming up and this TV rights deal is the key one because I think, Jess, there's two things that excite me about it. One is that, there will be other players for the W rights deal because there's so many new streamers who weren't even in the game in 2015, the last time these were up. And it's sort of this middle ground. Maybe they're not ready to make the bazillion dollar bid for the Men's World Cup or NBA rights, but they want to have live TV rights. So they might drive up the value of it. But if ESPN fights to keep them, no doubt baked into them fighting to keep them and the W selling the rights back to ESPN will be better content built around the WNBA, like studio shows that actually talk about the storylines. And you and, I, you and I are big storyline people. So this 2025 moment to me is a very important one. Yeah, it all comes back to the issue of visibility, right? If it's easy to turn on your TV and find a WNBA game without having to search through pages of like streaming platforms or ESPN plus services where you have to scroll past like a hundred games to get to the one you want. More people are going to watch it. The ratings do really well. It, the average for regular season games in 2021 was around 306,000 viewers. And the idea that ESPN is now has, has such a, a sweetheart deal for these rights. It's great for ESPN. It's great for, the network because they don't have to put out a lot of money to elevate these games, but it's not great for the WNBA. WNBA compared to MLS, which gets similar viewership numbers, is making around $70 million less for their rights deal. So that is just an estimate based off of, because ESPN doesn't actually want to say what they're paying for it. But that's a crazy difference. And those are two leagues that are both around 30 years old, have similar ratings. 
And I mean, I just, I can't think of a, a reason why that would be other than, like you said, it's not valued as much. It's kind of tossed in by the people making the deals as like a, a side thing. And that, that really needs to change. We should probably bounce back up to NECA. I mean, we don't want to keep her waiting as as good hosts. No, Mish. and got, Kate, an, an ad just started auto-playing on this ESPN article, so we need to get back up. All right, let's do it. How are you approaching, not that you go and you sell the TV rights, but it's a big thing for the players. How are you thinking about that deal being up? Bigger, better, more. You know, I think that that's really what it is. And honestly, I think if there was just like a focus word or a billboard sign, it would just be accessibility. That's really how I'm thinking about it. And that comes down to not just being on more networks, but also being primetime. You know, if people can't find the games, that's one thing. But then if people aren't home to watch them, that's also another thing. So accessibility means being able to know when the game is on, understand like, oh, you know, it's tonight a game is on. I know a W game is on people wanting to watch advertising also playing a big a big role in that as well like i think it's just more basic than we really think it is and i'm i'm excited to see how much better it gets and i think also too like with social media engagement from the players there's no other option but to have an even more robust media coverage and broadcasting opportunity when it's up yeah it feels like that eliminating the friction the amount of steps between me and wanting to watch the game i want to watch should be one. There should be one step. That's it. Just one. <laughs> not seven. Definitely not seven. <laughs> <laughs> right. When you look at where y'all are right now in the W and on the precipice of certain different changes that may come up, like the one we're talking about here with the TV rights deal, and you being someone coming out of Stanford and having seen the last like five, seven years, can you share where the W is at now compared to them? Like, what have you seen on the inside that like, I think you could articulate for people about the growth that has happened, both inside and outside the game. It's a lot. And it's like in such such a small period of time. Like if we're thinking like I'm about to enter my 11th season, we're thinking seven years back, which for me was what, 2016-ish? I was just talking to a young lady about this. She was asking about, you know, like balancing NIL and such and, and just trying to understand like, what does that look like? And I, and I was telling her, I was like, I, I don't know how you guys are doing it, to be honest, because when I first came into the league, you had the heavy hitters, you had the obvious choices. And then anyone who wasn't an obvious choice, even some high profile players, it was just like shoe deal. That was it. And now, now we've expanded or we've evolved into brands. You can build a brand off a moment. <laughs> you can build a brand off of a moment. You can have a 50 piece and then boom, you're known as the 50 piece killer. Like it's, it's insane. It's just a grab bag of ways to kind of build your brand. Now, as we navigate more equality and equity in brand seeking and partnership, sustainability is really what I think is most important. Now people can't be on women's sports because it's hot. And I think as women, as women in sport, once you give us the mic, we're not giving it back. You know what I'm saying? So, so we're in a moment now we're like, okay, you guys are finally seeing us. Like, let's show you what we can do, you know? And so that sustainability component is going to have to come from more of these brand partnerships and organizations that are really seeking to grow the league in ways that we have always known on the inside. Like the game's always been fire. Like the game has always been fire. And now it's being showcased in a way in which matches 
the intensity and just the competitiveness and the high level of play. I'd have to say too, like on the inside, we're evolving further away from like traditional players, you know, there's very few back to the basket posts now, you know? And then like, if you're not at least like between five ten and six one, then like you're a small guard. Like it's, <laughs> it's pretty nuts. And I, I just really love seeing how it's growing. I'm really excited to see how players capitalize on their moments on the court and translate that to off the court, but most especially how the league can work synergistically to really amplify that. I see it happening. I'm experiencing it. So, yeah. Sometimes I, I picture when we're 80 and the W is in like a sold out 22,000 seat arena at 8 p.m. on whatever device we watch things on now. Like, do you ever let your mind drift to like the work you're putting in now and someday being able to look back on what that work has done for even like two generations down the line? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's funny when people ask us, when I say us, like just players, when they ask us like, well, how do you, where do you see the league? And like, for me, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to be alive when I see the, whether I'm in the, in, in the league or I'm just alive and well mm-hmm. to see the first like $1 million contract signed. And then it's funny because Sue will be like, I want to be that old person. That's like, we should have had that. We should have had this. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what we want. You know, that's what we're doing it for. A lot of what we're doing now is not because we're going to, we're going to benefit from it. And I hope that we can all, as players in this league and women in sport, I hope that we can all continue to have that perspective because if we don't do it for ourselves, we've seen no one's going to do it for us. So that seems like that would be even more motivating, knowing that you're doing it for like a lineage that feels very motivating. Yeah, it is. And I mean, like also too, there's a legacy component to it. I went to Stanford where they were talking about Nicole Powell and, and I played with Jane Appel and, you know, the, Jennifer Az and so like when you hear what feels like tales, it feels almost there's a mysticism about it that you want to be a part of, you know. And in the W, I I don't ever want to be a retired player who is being referred to as the ones that ruined it, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, like what did they do for us? When did this, you know, like why didn't you guys support us the way we needed to? I don't want I don't want the players in the league when I'm done to be fighting the same fight that we are. Okay, so one of the, we're coming up on season two of of this show. The first season, a huge through line was the jumping off point was you not making Team USA. And then a conversation that ensued from there that I won't drag you into all of that. But since since you're here, I would like to know, what did you take away from the experience of of not making Team USA? Hmm, I mean, I took a lot away. Are you speaking professionally? Anything, personally, professionally, whatever... Whatever you learned from that, we are here to listen. I mean, I definitely learned about uh, perceived self-worth and attaching yourself to, I guess, uh, the tangibles, which is a very dangerous place. Because when you do that, then you question your value. I learned that you can do everything right and be told that you'll be rewarded and it doesn't happen. I've definitely learned that. I've learned to fuck the haters. I really don't. I'm sorry. Can I cuss on here? Yes. That's just, yes. That, yeah. Yes. I think Neca, that you can cuss. <laughs> Actually, can, can you say it again? I'm a little bit louder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's just kind of like, and like also too, like I've learned like, like people feeling sorry for you is like one of, I feel like it's one of the most disrespectful things that you could mm. ever experience. People feeling bad for you. Like, and even if it's justified, I just, 
I just didn't like the way that it felt. I've also, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned was everyone makes choices. You just have to make sure that the choices that you make don't mess up the future that you're building. So I don't, I don't hold grudges. I don't hold anything against anyone, but you still have to maintain relationships because at the end of the day, we're all people and you never know when, you know, your path could cross with someone. It was a lot of lessons. I'm sure there were. <laughs> all right. Our final question on Off the Looking Glass. Jess, you want to do this one? Yeah. So we've been watching and reviewing a lot of like older sports movies, specifically ones involving women athletes. And there's been such a wide variance of people's favorite sports movies, specifically the female athletes that we've interviewed. So we're wondering, do you have an iconic movie from your childhood that is your absolute go-to favorite sports movie? I can't say that this movie is a go-to, <laughs> but it was definitely iconic for my childhood. I'm a product of like, you know, the Nickelodeon cartoon mm. network, Disney era. And so my first experience of getting really enthralled by basketball was also accompanied by watching Double Teamed on Disney Channel. Ask <laughs> 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 today this, like we really were like really trying to mimic their moves in the movie, which that whole like the whole move she made at the end, I was like, mm. I actually tried to do that in practice. And I was like, you know what? I don't know if they captured this the way that she actually did. And we ended up getting to meet um, Heather and Heidi. I don't even remember. It was at like a camp or something like that. Like it was one of those, like when you go to university camps and it was just a full circle moment, but I can't necessarily say it's like a go-to, but it definitely, <laughs> definitely gave, gives some nostalgic memories. So yeah. I don't think anyone's in. Wow, that. no, no one has said <laughs> that no, yet. No, no. But no, now you're alone. I, I you're alone. Kate, we need to add that to our list. Yeah, we yes. haven't. That's not on our list yet. That's a great <laughs> answer. All right. Well, thank you, Neka, so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. time when the world was changing rapidly, one young woman found herself standing at the crossroads. And the first ever 100 meter dash gold medal goes to Miss Penny Robinson. She's now the fastest woman in the world. Well, gee, Betty, how'd you do it? What was it like over there, the Olympic Games? There were 60,000 people all in one place, Johnny, and all those eyes on you. The energy. It's like the world was all in one place. Now what? I want to do it again. It's all I can think about. Getting faster and faster. Winning all the medals they'd let me go for. The story of one young woman's pursuit of speed. Robinson, winner of the Women's Sprinting Championship in the Olympic Games in Amsterdam in 1928, was critically injured today in an airplane crash here. Which became an epic story of survival. Doc, will she live? And the lengths she would go to overcome the odds. You don't need to do this, Betty. You've got nothing to prove. 
have to get back there. It's the only thing that matters now. The true story of the first women's Olympic sprint champion who rose from the ashes. Honey marks. Get set. Phenomenon, the Betty Robinson story. And select it as soon as we can write the script, shoot the film, and find a distributor. The scope of the motion picture is tremendous. It brings to us the life of fallen lands and strange peoples, the highlights of current events. The theater screen gives pleasure and enlightenment to millions every day. This is Does It Hold Up, where Jess and I go back and watch films that put women on the field or on the court, and we decide whether it still inspires and wows us, or whether it's a heaping pile of shit. For every person who only wanted that one chance. For the rest of you. But never got it. I'd like to thank you for trying out. Your day has come. Let's kick some butt. Are you ready for a miracle? Want intimidation? I'll show you intimidation. Little Giants. Do you like football? No. You want to play football? No. Great, you can be on our team. Action. (laughs) Go. So we watched Little Giants, Jess. We did watch Little Giants. I have so much to say about Little Giants. 1994, just to anchor it in a time period. Yes, directed by Dwayne Dunham. And the budget for this movie, $20 million. That's significant, I feel like. Is it? I don't know. You need to like do the inflation calculations. Yeah. 1994, $20 million for a movie that has virtually no special effects. You know what, Kate? I feel like $5 million was John Madden's appearance fee. So (laughs) the film itself (laughs) was probably closer to $15 million. We should acknowledge that at the time, the two main stars of the movie, Rick Moranis and Ed O'Neill, were probably pretty hot then. I mean, Ed O'Neill is coming off of Married with Children. He's the star of this big hit show. I've heard of that. Yeah, you, I'm sure you've watched you the know whole what? canon. You know what I know Ed O'Neill from? His cameo in Wayne's World, where he plays the <laughs> guy behind the counter of Makita's Donuts, who apparently has like killed many people in a in some previous <laughs> life. He is great in Wayne's World, but um, well, and also wasn't he in uh, Ghostbusters as well? Ghostbusters so. was before Honey I Shrunk the. Oh, yes. you're right. No, it was yeah. after Honey I Shrunk the Kids. So Mick, Rick Moranis is hot shit at this point. Maybe a lot of that budget is going to this male star power one-two punch of Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis who play the O'Shea brothers in the movie. They are two brothers who grew up in Urbania, Ohio. And one of the brothers, Ed O'Neill, is a big football star, a Heisman winner. And Rick Moranis is the whip-smart younger brother who's always been overshadowed and stepped on by his big football star brother. That's sort of like the crux of the premise. Yeah, and the movie opens with 
this water tower in Urbania, Ohio, and a flashback scene to the two brothers when they're young. And they say they're going to have their names on the water tower someday. And then we flash forward and only Kevin O'Shea's name's on the water tower because he's won the Heisman Trophy and his brother is a mechanic. He's a nobody. And Kevin O'Shea is like the big masculine coach of the peewee football team in town. So the mean older brother grew up to become a amazing football player, but then ended up back as a peewee coach in his hometown. So my guess is that he must have gotten canceled for something. And he cuts Rick Moranis's daughter, Becky, who's played by Shauna Waldron, from the team because she's a girl. <gasps> a girl. We'll get more into the analysis of it. But the premise of the movie for 1994, pretty forward thinking. We've got a young, around 12-year-old girl as like the catalyst for this movie about a peewee football team. And so the fallout from her being cut by her star football Heisman winning uncle is that she and a band of misfits, we'll Mm -hmm. call them, who have been cut from this team, they still want to play football. And she especially wants to play football because all of the guys that, all the little boys that made the football team, they're the popular bullies in town. Mm -hmm. They want to show them up. And so our young star whose name is Icebox. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Ice, Icebox might be like an ode to the fridge, right? Like William Perry. I don't know what Icebox connotes other than like maybe she doesn't show emotion. She's like an Icebox. They don't really explain that except for when she yeah. then catches feelings later on in the movie. And she's like, the Icebox doesn't blah, blah, blah. And so Becky is on this team of misfits and Rick Moranis decides to challenge his brother for peewee football supremacy in the town of Urbania, Ohio, one single game elimination playoff game, essentially, between this band of misfits that his daughter the is giants. on, the little giants, and Kevin O'Shea's peewee team, which the I cowboys. The cowboys, that's right. It's interesting that even though this film is set in Ohio, Urbania, Ohio, that the team is the Dallas Cowboys. Seems like they really wanted to like lean into that villain. The Death Star. They're going to show up later on in the film, too. Yep. Actual cowboys. So this is the premise of the film. This is the central tension of the film. There's like very Bad News Bears-esque. Yeah. There's, there's a lot yeah. of like sports movie cliches going on. But you're right. Like the, the catalyst for all that's happening is discrimination. <laughs> yes. It feels very an ode to your extra extra at the end of season one. Yes. About softball and baseball and how so many young girls get cut from their baseball team and they have to go play softball. Now, here we have Icebox just wants to play peewee football and she's cut by her uncle for no other reason than she's a girl. So far, my takeaway is that Maria Pepe, the little girl who sued Little League Baseball, her parents should have just started their own baseball league. Seems like a solid workaround. I don't think we'd be giving anything away to let you know, listener, that the Little Giants prevail in the end. And we have a meeting of the minds that would be Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis, the O'Shea brothers, and they decide that the Cowboys and the Giants will form one peewee team in Urbania and that they can be co-head coaches. So for 1994, there is a lot to love about this movie and some of the storylines that it puts forth. However, Kate, I think there is also... How, how, however, a very clumsy... There are very clumsy themes throughout this film oh, that oh. 
I mean, we can start with the gender identity theme, which is a main theme because Becky is a football player, but she likes a boy on the team. So then she becomes a cheerleader, but she really wants to be a football player. But how is a a man ever going to or a boy? They're not men. How is a boy ever going to like her if she's not girly? And there's that whole like gender identity confusion. Oh, no. The icebox. She can't be fully icebox she has to like like guys and so she likes this hong kong hunk of blonde haired he looks like a he grows up to be a star is that is that what is his name Devin something hold on <laughs> there's also like tons of masculinity threads like this entire film i think is fair to say is a dick measuring contest between the two brothers yes but For a movie that I think maybe at the time was like, hmm, this might be feminist. There's a girl who wants to play football. There's a lot of clumsy things left at the end that we're going to try to make sense of right now. Packed into this movie is almost every kids sports movie trope that you could ever imagine. Actually, just movie trope that you could ever imagine. We've got the fat kid who is not only the fat kid, right, who gets cut because they're fat and slow. Like there's a scene where Ed O'Neill, Kevin O'Shea, he runs the 40-yard dash, and then the kid is like, what was my time? And he was like, it was actually kind of funny. I chuckled. He was like, sorry, I don't have a sundial. You know, so it's like there's the fat kid, slow, gets cut joke. Not only is the fat kid slow and he gets cut, but of course he is also passes gas throughout right. the movie. This like, kid has IBS or something. Yeah, there's and just no, he is the butt of every joke. And there's no amount of farts that are too many for this movie. Like, we didn't do one fart joke. We didn't do two. We didn't do three. I mean, we did all of it them. It is peppered. It is peppered with fart jokes throughout. We've also got um, a scene in which Kevin O'Shea, Hasman winning Kevin O'Shea's wife, actually serves him a sandwich. Oh, damn. The wife actually delivers him a sandwich, puts it down on his desk, and is like, Your sandwich. We're really playing up all the tropes here. <laughs> well, I mean, like, so. We've got that. We've got... Go for it. I was going to say, Kevin O'Shea's wife, by the way, might be the only, like, redeemable character in this film, other than the fact that she's married to Kevin O'Shea. She's, like, the only one who actually has, like, a modern 2022 commentary on, like, why can't a girl play football? They can be in the Supreme Court and be presidents. But that's... Besides the point. She was the conscious. Of, she yes. was the conscious of the film. She was exactly. this character. But even so, and she was still in the role of make me a sandwich. I'm doing the footballing and you're making me a sandwich, even as she would push back against him. And at the end of the movie, she's obviously married to the coach of the Cowboys and she's cheering for the little giants and she's cheering for Icebox O'Shea and her squad to prevail. So... This movie for me felt very 1994 because (laughs) as I remember it, and maybe this is what the decade of growing up feels like to anyone who grew up in a decade, but it felt like we were very post counterculture revolution of the sixties and seventies and the Vietnam protests and pre nine 11, where this was the kind of movie that was being made. It was just like popcorn kids flick. We're not really, pressing on and stress testing any of our ideas. We're just packing a bunch of like banana slip and falls and like that's what we're doing here in the 90s. Absolutely. The movie also does this thing where this band of misfits, they're not enough. We can't have a story where they just 
band together and they figure it out and there's chemistry and teamwork. We have to have the white quarterback savior come into the movie, which is very like, which is still very NFL 2020, really. So the little giants, they're never going to be good enough, right? Like without. Yes, Devin Sawa. How did I pull that name? That's him. Devin Sawa. That's the actual actor's name who was anyone who is a, who plays junior. And he just moved into town with his smoking hot mom, of course. And he's like got the floppy blonde hair in the 90s. Like he's the guy who has the flannel tucked around his waist with the crisp white t-shirt in the 90s. And he's new to the town. So he doesn't know about the O'Shea brothers. He doesn't know that the Cowboys are are the cool A-list football team. And he's playing with the Misfits. So this band of Misfits also has to have the sexy white quarterback Mm -hmm. if they are going to compete, which... Maps very well on to football to this day. That's true. So what? a couple other, three other points to get to. And the last one I think we'll spend the most time on. There is a trope of there being an absent parent. So Becky, her mom left them. And they're very frank about this throughout the film. And there's multiple allusions to the fact that because her mom left, she is like lacking in femininity because she doesn't have like a female role model who's taught her how to put on lipstick. And we are to assume that because her mom has left them, this is why she's a quote unquote tomboy and Mm -hmm. is so close with her dad. And I don't think that that's necessarily unrealistic for people who grew up in a single parent family home to like gravitate towards one parent's thing that they like to do. But this movie is very explicitly trying to tell you that like, because she doesn't have a mom, the mom's not in the picture, she's a tomboy. And then there's another trope throughout this film, which is basically, I'm just going to call it the cheerleaders are stupid trope, which is cheerleaders, vapid, girly. They don't actually, that's, it's not actual sports. It's not athletics. If you're a cheerleader, you're doing something way less valuable than playing football. I think that mentality around cheerleading has changed a lot in the 27 years since this movie came out. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say, Kate, which I I feel like we're going to spend the most time on because it's come up time and time again in all of these movies that we've watched for this segment, is that we have a leading female athlete character who is the best on her team until Junior shows up. And then we have to show that she's straight and she's into this dude because we can't have any questions about her sexuality and whether or not she's a lesbian. That's right. You teed me up perfectly. And this movie comes out in 1994 and another movie which we will review is She's the Man. And the two are very parallel in terms of both characters are playing on teams with boys for different reasons, but they both have to fall in love with a boy on the team and they both leave the sport and come back at halftime of the key game. So this thing with Becky Icebox O'Shea is she is, quote unquote, too boy-like because she is playing a sport, which is like a really, uh, this is too strong to say dangerous, but it's a thing that a lot of people have always believed and still believe to this day that Icebox O'Shea is not who she is because she is who she is, but because it's a ramification of being around sports, quote unquote, male energy. Oh no, they did the, if you treat her like a girl, she'd start acting like a girl. You know, the undercurrent of which is that sports make the ladies gay. And 
the film solves for it. Film is too strong of a word, but the movie <laughs> solves for it by introducing Junior, the good-looking quarterback. And this is where the film got really weird for me because it went into like overdrive. It was like every scene where Junior and Icebox are together, she's essentially like fawning over him and unable to even complete a sentence or play football. She's like, She's like landing on top of him and like can't get off of him. It's so overdone. The strange thing is, is like, I know that character. Like I have been that character before where you're like, I'm sporty and not girly enough. Therefore, I'm like, I'm going to put on lipstick that isn't for me, even if I'm straight. It's not a reflection of who I am, but I'm like doing all this presenting of this, this character that society will value to the point that in the movie, I was like, stop. How many times do we have to see that she is fawning all over herself for this guy? I wrote this down because even though the movie gets to this place, taking all of the wrong routes, it still got to this place, which I'm about to say. So there's a line where Becky Icebox O'Shea decides that she's not going to play in the whatever we're calling it, like the showdown, the Urbania showdown between the Cowboys and the Giants. And she says, I thought I wanted to play, but not with all this other stuff. And when she says not with all this other stuff, she means the fact that I'm questioning who I am and how society sees me and that I have to see these cheerleaders who like are reflecting a version of femininity that I can't reach. And then I've got my dad who is like now caring more about the sport than about me and parents are getting weird about it and you're putting all the pressure on the little kids. And so she walks away and girls walk away from sports all of the time for reasons like this. And so the movie ends up in this place where I'm like, oh, it got somewhere, even though I think the premises of how we're showing it was flawed. That line, I thought I wanted to play, but not with all this other stuff. That is a thread of youth sports for girls. Absolutely. And and like the other stuff, like you just mentioned, is basically, I think you can boil it down to like performing a gender norm, right? And having to fit into a mold that she doesn't fit into because society, probably especially in the 90s, doesn't know what to do with a woman who excels on a field who is being her true self and it doesn't fit into a a category in a nice, neat little box. And this entire film is very, I think, confusing because it sets out to be a film about these two brothers who are at battle with one another and then found its way making a much I think, more interesting story about Becky. And in the director's commentary of this film, actually, the director admitted that they initially in the first script did not intend to make Becky a central character of the show. But when they were writing the script, they realized, hmm, Becky is the most interesting of the misfits because she's a girl. Let's make her character bigger and, and more important. And so I'm not sure if the film ever even intended to set out to have a conversation about gender and masculinity and femininity and masculine hegemonic peewee football coaches. But we ended up in that place because they decided that the biggest misfit of all was this young girl. Yes. The movie, I think, stumbles into a lot of really revelatory moments without meaning to. Like, I actually think if the overall question is, does this movie hold up? It's in this weird territory for me where... 
I actually think there's a lot within it that foreshadows a generation later, because this movie is now 28 years old. But I don't know that it intended to, right? Like, for example, there's the tropey smart kid who's got all of the computers and he's got the glasses on. And of course, he's not going to make the A team, the Cowboys. And he doesn't even want to play football. But he gets recruited to design plays. And then, like, this is the precursor to Moneyball. This is right. like young Daryl Morey here, who actually has no, I'm not saying Daryl himself doesn't have athletic background, but this idea that sports are now often run by data heads and mostly men who can, like, create algorithms to help explain the sport better. Like, that existed in this Little Giants movie, I think, inadvertently, obviously. That's also something that's changed a lot in the NFL in the last five years. Now, I think all of the quote unquote, exciting, young, new NFL head coaches are people with analytic backgrounds or people who are not former players. They're former assistants who had some sort of like advanced schematic approach to playing that has like Sean McVay has now taken them to a Super Bowl twice and won a Super Bowl. So that is definitely you're absolutely right about that. That is a very interesting theme for 27 years ago. Did you think that parts of this movie held up? Yes, I think parts of the movie did hold up. I think that where the movie, no pun intended, fumbled the landing was in the ending because I was waiting for a scene in which Rick Moranis's character kind of had some sort of like relevatory moment where he could teach a lesson to his daughter and be like, just be yourself. Like that, for that to be the theme. But the movie ended on like the two brothers both being put up on the water tower. Like that yes. was the, the moral of the story was that Rick Moranis had like a, a comeback story and now could, you know, equal his brothers in, in fame in their hometown. It really wasn't about Becky at all. And so at the end, Becky comes back on the field. She puts on her helmet, but she leaves her cheerleading skirt on. I think that choice is meant to indicate that, look, she's a girl and she's playing football. It's very blunt in your face. Like, yes. we have to make her wear a skirt. She literally, yeah, has half a skirt and half football uniform on. Right, exactly, which no one would ever play in. But look, like, she can be both. She can be a girl and she can play football. But then at the end, like, there's no, like, romantic moment at the end with Junior, which they're also 10, so I don't know if, like, there should be. They don't have, like, a, a kiss scene at the end. They have, like, a sort of moment where they look at each other and talk. Kiss but was on the brain. Right. In that moment. Yes. Right. It was odd. Like that kind of never got closed up. The only real storyline thread that did was the one with the two brothers. Yes. To me, that kind it holds up in that that is still an accurate reflection of our world in that, oh, at the end of the day, the two men's names are up on the marquee. Right. In this case, the water tower <laughs> due to the labor of Icebox and... <laughs> So like that kind of holds up, even though I think obviously I think the world is shifting. The other thing that holds up for me, whether or not the director intended this, was that it's a pretty spot on parody of the ridiculousness of youth sports on Absolutely. so many levels. Like, Absolutely. That still holds up. Like the they are willing to sacrifice the body, minds, and souls of these young kids to vicariously reconcile past relationships and past loss. And that feels applicable every day of the week when it comes to youth sports, whether or not they intended it. One other thing that maybe we can put back with our like icebox, or maybe it goes with what you said about the end scene where 
Icebox and Junior don't quite kiss, but there's like a kind of like a leaning in like it might happen. Right. It was made very clear in the film that Junior was not, a quote unquote, allowed to be more romantically interested in Icebox. Like, he couldn't have liked her. She doesn't think he can like her because she's not a reflection of like the ideal femininity and he's a reflection of ideal masculinity at such a young age. And even though I would have liked to have seen them, like even like a peck of a kiss, because that would have like really flipped the cliche on its head because you're left wondering, okay, he respects her, but he's not ever going to allow himself to be interested in a girl who is also sporty, which I, that still holds up as a issue in women's sports that I think a lot of female athletes like have to try to perform over the top to like make up for the fact that they're athletic. And I would have liked to have seen him be like, I don't care what other people think. I don't care what the norm would be. I like you. But it didn't quite go there. Right. It didn't quite go there. And there is a, a moment in the film where Kevin O'Shea, who is just the biggest asshole, tells his niece in a diner, Junior's never going to like you because you're a football player and and like hot young quarterbacks want a cheerleader. They don't want you. Yeah. And that so, yeah, you're right. Like that never got debunked in the film. There's just like we're left with like this kind of moment between them. And then at the same time, Rick Moranis is getting like his mom like they're. Yeah, he's scoring with with, right. the, with the movie Hottie. Yeah. So now they're siblings, essentially. <laughs> so maybe also, Murray, she's the man. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a lot of weird stuff at the end. I will say parts of it held up. You're right. Like, especially the maybe perhaps unintended commentary on youth sports. I do think that all of the reasons that this film maybe was outside of the box in 1994 are reasons that it also falls flat now because it, it started to have a conversation that it never really finished. Kate, I really wasn't sure about that like old timey voice I was trying to use. Not to like oh, reveal any state secrets here, but but like mm, that, that was, was you. that was me. And our friends Johnny. Amin, Mike, and Chris Whittingham. So I don't know, did it play? Like was it a little cringy? I well, I thought that you played cringy well. Like you were going over the top 1920s woman with your affect and also like Chicago. Midwestern woman, and that's I just my, that's just it. me. Like I wasn't the Chicago thing is is natural. I wasn't actually trying yeah. to sound like I was from Chicago. I've noticed that it's like the O's and the A's are when it really yeah. comes out. Like when I say "Oh my God," everyone's like, yeah. "Wow, you're." So I thought you were great, and let's just also give a special shout out to Joel Shupak, who is our sound designer for Off the Looking Glass, but who really did a great job on that trailer because. I listened to the fake Betty Robinson movie ad without any sound, and I was terrified that it was <laughs> going to bomb completely. I was like, this is horrific. Well, so maybe, sound. maybe it did bomb. Let us know what you think. Tweet at us. Let us know if this is a movie that you would watch, and maybe tweet it at some studios and see if we can get this picked up. Yeah, do they want to finance? Uh, Jess and I could write the script. I mean, we are here. We want to make our first major Hollywood movie here at Off the Looking Glass, which seems like the natural next step, right? Absolutely. Who else helped make this wonderful episode too? Carl Scott, our executive producer. You, Kate. Me. Mm -hmm. Joel Shupak. 
Amin El Hassan, Mike Ryan Ruiz, Chris Whittingham, all were voice actors in our wonderful trailer like we mentioned. Yes, and a big thank you to Ruth Riley, who you heard at the very top of the show, WNBA champion, NCAA champion, as well as NECA. I was going to say as well as Notre Dame champion, but... Uh, I'm sorry I didn't name check Notre Dame. That was a big miss on my part. And NECA for dropping by the show. Yes. Plus, absolutely. we've got the named number heads now. The named number heads, <laughs> yes. And we'll be back Henry with and Mari next week with more named number heads. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.